Welcome to the Board Game Design Lab podcast. Each week, we want to bring you an insightful interview on a specific topic in board game design to help you design and create games people love. And now, here's your host, Gabe Barrett. What's up, my friends? Welcome to the Board Game Design Lab. Today, we're talking about what Tom Vassell has learned after playing thousands upon thousands of games. He reviews hundreds of games. He's the founder and the leader of the Dice Tower. It's a podcast. It's a YouTube channel. It's a, it's a cruise. It's a convention. It's all sorts of really incredible things for the board game community. And, and Tom, really appreciate you being on the show today. Oh, thank you for having me. And so, Tom, just in case you know people aren't familiar with you or the Dice Tower, just give me a, a brief synopsis, kind of how you got started you know, and what you guys are doing now. Well, I got started basically just by playing board games like everybody else. Uh, around 15 years ago, I started writing reviews of games because I just wanted other people to know about the games that I liked. And it just started snowballing uh, just a little over, I guess, I don't know, 12 or 12 years ago. I moved into the podcasting. I heard about this thing called podcasting, thought it sounded fun. And I like to talk more than I like to write. So we started a podcast called The Dice Tower, which is about to hit its 500th episode. And then a few years later in 2008, jumped into the video realm on YouTube. And so we're basically a media center that's all about telling people about board games, uh, what we like about them, what we don't like about them, which ones we think are great, which ones we think are awful and should be burned, top 10 lists, all sorts of things. And over the years, many, many other folks have joined me. It's not a one-man show. There are many people involved. Awesome. You know, and there's so many people out there that I've talked to that bring up the Dice Tower as being one of the uh, the biggest sources of information. And some people have even talked about how they got into games because of you guys. And I'm actually one of them. Uh, back, This is crazy how I remember this. But February 2011, I went and I was typing in. I was trying to find a Panda Express near me to go eat dinner. And for whatever reason, I typed Pony Express into Google and it popped up a board game review from Tom Vassell about this game called Pony Express. And I thought, well, that's weird. And so I clicked on it. And like that was the, the initial like walking through the door and realizing that board games were more than just Monopoly and Risk. That there was a much bigger world. And I remember just watching hours of reviews that day just thinking, goodness gracious, like there's a whole new world I wasn't even aware of. And I've talked to so many people. It's kind of the same thing. They find their way to your reviews. And, and all of a sudden, this, this brand new thing. It becomes a hobby, becomes a passion. And so, you know, thank you guys for what y'all do because, I mean, you're you're a go-to place for, for information about is a game good or how do you play a game and all that. So just really appreciate what you guys are doing over there. I appreciate that. And, and that really shows the power of YouTube because before YouTube, I was writing reviews, I was doing podcasts, but you only found that if you were kind of looking for it, right? Mm-hmm. Right. With YouTube, uh, the world can just accidentally stumble across this, and I'm glad for that. I'm excited about that. So give me just a, an idea. What Just a ballpark number. How many games do you think you've played in that amount of time? Oh, man. Um, well, let me. I'm going to quick uh, go to my profile on BoardGameGeek and see how many games I've rated because that's not actually correct, but it should be close. So let's see. I've rated... 4,700. 4,700 games you've rated. And so you've probably played maybe maybe one or two more than that. We're and just so, going to say 5,000 because it sounds cool. That's right. It's a good round number. Uh, awesome. And so let's, let's kind of talk 
um, about what you've learned in, in playing that many games. What are what are some of the biggest mistakes you've seen in games? Just kind of trends or, or, or mistakes that just keep coming up that are just bothersome. It's like this should not be happening. What are some of the mistakes you've seen? Oh man, <laughs> this show could be very long. <laughs> <Sorry>. um, <laughs> Briefly, well, I guess. The biggest mistake is that people don't get feedback outside of a closed circuit. You know, they'll show it to their friends, they'll show it to their family. And they'll play it with the same people over and over again. Those people will understand the game. They know, you know, essentially, quote, how to play the game properly. And then they're kind of mind boggled when other people don't enjoy it. You, you really have to to know more. I'm, I am convinced if you want to design a board game or publish a board game, you really need to know the, the subject. Hmm. I don't know much about fishing. But if I was going to start a blog about fishing, you could bet I would read a whole lot about it. I'd go and learn as much as I could on the subject before designing a new fishing pole, you know, and, and so I'm, I'm kind of surprised sometimes I'll meet designers and publishers and they'll say, oh, this game is very similar to some other game. They'll go, well, I never heard of it. I'm like, well, how could you not have? Do some research. Learn about your subject. I've talked about on the show with some other guests is if you want to be a great designer, well, you have to play a lot of games. You know, if you want to be a great writer, you got to read a lot of books or, you know, watch a lot of movies if you want to be a filmmaker. And it's the same thing. Uh, any kind of tips on maybe some specific games that are almost like holy grails that, okay, if you hadn't played this game, you need to. Oh, that's ooh, that's a good top ten list. Mm, there you top go. ten games game designers should play. I haven't thought about that. I, <laughs> I think I would make everybody play Magic the Gathering once at least so you kind of get the idea of how that works. You probably – everyone should play Dominion to figure that concept. Settlers of Catan is something – I think I'd make people play some more complex games too. I'd make them play El Grande. I'd make somebody play, hmm, what's a good game that would teach you a lot of things about game design? You know, I would say right now, Pandemic Legacy would teach you a lot at the same time. You'd learn legacy, you'd learn story, you'd learn the, the mechanics in Pandemic, you'd learn co-op. So maybe some of those games that kind of hit a lot of different angles at the same time. Yeah, sure. I, I might do Pandemic. I don't know that I would say Pandemic Legacy. I know everyone's like super jazzed about Legacy. <laughs> don't get me wrong. I am too. But there is currently less than, I think, six games that even use it. That's very and true. four of those games are designed by the same person. <laughs> right. So, um, but yeah, but no, there's a lot of games out there really. And it's it's not a hard thing to do. You can just go out there and say, what kind of game do you want to design? Like if you're not designing a war game, you don't need to play a bunch of war games. But if you are, then you better play a lot. Because you'll come out and be like, look at this this new thing I've invented. Uh, not quite so new. Right. Already been done. And that's not a bad thing. Don't don't let that dissuade you. But know what's out there already. Make it better. Don't don't be a step backwards. Yeah, absolutely. And do you run into a lot of issues where it just seems like a designer didn't understand the mechanics? Like if you're playing a worker placement game, it's like almost like they just didn't get what that meant to make a worker placement game. Yeah, I, maybe. I just find that a lot of designers, they tend to overcomplicate things. And again, it's because if if you play a game one time, you're not really learning that game that well. You play multiple times, you learn the game better and better, and you don't need to look up rules anymore. You know every card in the game, and that's the way designers are with a lot of their games. They'll play it, and they'll play it with the same group over and over and over again. And pretty soon that group's like, oh, well, of course, in this situation, you do this, 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 and this. But new people coming into the game go, I, I don't know what this is. There's way too much in this game. And that's that can be problematic. Sometimes simplicity is a really – well, I shouldn't say sometimes. Almost always simplicity is better. 
Right. I think that speaks to what you said just a moment ago was, was getting the out, outside feedback and not just playing the game over and over and over again with the same people, but actually introducing the game to new people in its playtesting process and, and just kind of hearing their feedback and, and learning from it. Right, right. It's always important to get that other feedback. And nowadays with the Internet, you can easily get feedback from various people. you got to, you know, put on your flame-retardant armor. <laughs> um, but, yeah, there's, there's feedback out there for you. With, with the kind of the, the emergence of Kickstarter a handful of years ago as being a, just a really great way for people to get games funded and into production and, and into people's hands on their table, we've also had some kind of issues with Kickstarter games. And you've talked about this in the past. I've, I've heard you talk in different podcasts and whatnot. But let's talk about maybe some problems you've seen in Kickstarter games and how to kind of rectify those things. Yeah, actually, I'm, uh, we're, we're doing a, a segment on this soon. But the biggest problem people have with Kickstarter – is the barrier of entry is very low. And that's good, but also not always quite so good because people don't realize how much skills are needed to publish a board game. To design a board game, there's a certain set of skills, but publishing a board game is a very different thing. You need to have financial skills. You need to have logistical skills. You need to have promotional skills. You need to know graphic design and art. And many people, there's very few people in the world who are good at all of them. In fact, I think I can name like two, right? <laughs> right. For the most part, you're not good at all that. For example, I'm, I'm horrible with art. I'm not really that good with graphic design either. I know good graphic design when I see it, but I wouldn't know how to do it. Logistics, ooh, that would be tough for me to do. I think I could handle the financial part, but even that's really hard. And they also don't realize how much effort this takes. People are constantly getting beat up on Kickstarter because of success. You know, they're like, oh, I'll make this game and, oh, wow, a thousand people backed it. Oh, uh, that's more expensive than I had thought. And I didn't realize that shipping overseas costs this much money and, oh, I'm broke and now everyone's yelling at me and what do I do? Mm -hmm. And that's where a lot of the problems come. They're people with very good intentions. I mean, very there's, – there's, there's Kickstarters where people have, you know, flat out robbed you others. But most of the big failed Kickstarters, the people went in them with very good intentions and then were overwhelmed. It can be a very overwhelming thing. Absolutely. And like you talk about, you, you kind of become your own gatekeeper. You know, when you work with a publisher, they're the gatekeeper. They say, this is good, this is not good. And you can kind of trust them in that. With Kickstarter, it, there's, there's no gatekeeper. You kind of have to manage your, yourself. But, you know, if you run a few Kickstarters, how many Kickstarters have you run? Well, for my show, I've, I've run... Uh, four and one and the last one was an, an Indiegogo campaign. Wait, is it four or five? It's starting to blur together. Maybe it was five. Um, and I was also involved with my a game I designed. Nothing personal. I was involved with that Kickstarter, so I know some some. I I know a lot about Kickstarting. So what have you kind of learned in that process from doing it? You know, a good number of times now that you could kind of give some advice or help somebody that's thinking about it. Well, first of all, under promise, over deliver. Mm. That's a big one, right? If, if, if you're if you sit there and you calculate everything out and say, I think I can have this to people in May. Yeah, then you better write July. Right. And even then you're probably going to be late and you say, well, no, I got to figure it out. You're, you're there's always going to something go wrong. You know, give people a cooler thing than they expected to get. Be cautious when you're, you know, because the way the Kickstarter model has emerged, people are, are really pumped about, oh, Stretch Cool, you need to add a, a new plastic miniature to every single game. Yeah, everyone who backed the game, it's a new miniature. And everyone gets super excited about that. And you've just added a thousand, two thousand dollar cost to you without any reward for you. Right. 
other than the excitement that people have. And so many companies have gotten just murdered by this, ooh, they promise the world to people and then realize they can't follow up on that. Uh, figure shipping. Shipping kills people all the time. They don't realize how expensive it is to ship stuff, period. It is an expensive thing. So those are the th those are some of the mistakes that, that people make and also make a good game too, but that's a whole different ballpark. <laughs> Absolutely. Make sure your game's actually good enough to, to be more than just backed on Kickstarter one time. Let's kind of talk about what you just were refer you know, inferring about as far as backers and, and dealing with backers. How how have you managed maybe some problem backers, managed the the wave of ideas that people all of a sudden have when you have a big Kickstarter, you do get a lot of ideas for miniatures to add to the game or all these different things. How do you manage that without, uh, you know, making a lot of people unhappy, but also being able to deliver on time and, and deliver quality and not be over budget? That's a really difficult thing. You really have to kind of have your, your campaign mapped out before you go into it because people are going to say, do this, do this, do this. And you'd be like, oh, oh, maybe I should. And I don't care how good you are, how amazing you run your your Kickstarter, you are going to have disgruntled people hmm. who are unhappy no matter what you do. Jamie Stegmeyer from Stonemeyer Games uh, has run some of the best Kickstarters on the planet, and he still has disgruntled people to the point where he actually pulled out of Kickstartering hmm. yep. because if something's late, um, and and then people blame you. You know, you deliver it, and they oh they wrote the wrong address. That's your fault. <laughs> You know, that they wrote the wrong address and then you send it. It never got to them. It's your fault. Oh, it might be the post office. It might be that. No, it's your fault. And you will deal with that and people will get really loud. And even if 98% of your people are very positive, those 2% that are loud will drive you insane. And so what a lot of people do then is they shut down. All right. I'm, I'm going to forget this. And I've seen people. Uh, there was one Kickstarter where they burn stuff rather than send it to people. <laughs> I, I, I don't recommend that at all and i've also seen ones where i've seen them fall into depression mm. you know uh there was one kickstarter that i was part of where uh, the person who was sending it out did not realize that packing the things up and sending them out was not a quick process right and that it cost money and they ran out of money and so they sent them out and each update i got from this person was like i'll send some more out i'm really sorry guys i'm so depressed about the whole thing <laughs> And, and I feel bad about this, but at the same time, we, we are warning you now, right. listen to this, this, ah, we're, we, and this just keeps happening over and over and over again. However, people are getting more savvy. They're starting to ignore Kickstarters that are done by first time people. Mm -hmm. And so the barrier for entry is going to be raised as time goes by. No, that's a great point. That's, that's a huge red flag, especially when you see first time creator, zero projects backed. So they haven't even been part of the community or, or doing anything. They just kind of showed up out of nowhere and there's well, a, lot let of, me, a lot of red flags. Let me jump in there. I, I don't, I'm, I'm highly, I highly disagree with the fact that you need to back Kickstarters to run your own. Mm -hmm. I think backing Kickstarters is a good thing, but I don't look down on people who don't. And I'm a little concerned with the philosophy that many people run that says, get it now or you'll never get it. Mm. I hate that. Yeah. All right. I hate this whole, you need to decide right now without seeing the game, watching a bunch of videos by people who were paid to say positive things about the game. You need to get it now. Also, we're going to give you 6,000 extra items that no one else will ever get. Get it now, get it now, get it now, get it now. And you're like, oh, 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 oh okay, I'll get it now. And that's a really bad philosophy to have when buying anything, right. not just board games. You know, those car commercials, no, 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 you know, type stuff. 
That's really bad. They, they, they tell you not to do that. Shop around and look at things. And some of the Kickstarter culture has really pushed towards that. Get it now! And it's okay to wait till after it's published. It is. And sometimes, though, you feel like you didn't get the whole game. Or sometimes the games, uh, I would say at least half the Kickstarters I see, don't even bother with the retail thing once they get the game out there to people. No, it's a great point. And honestly, it's a, it's really a form of manipulation. It's manipulating people's psychology to make them feel like they're missing out if they don't back the game now. Where, oh, you're going to miss out because you're not going to get all these bonuses or all these stretch goals. And so what would you suggest that designers do instead? So instead of manipulating people in that way, what should they do? I mean, it sounds simplistic, but make an amazing product. Hmm. I mean, if you make a great product, people will come. If you have a great reputation for having made great products in the past – People will come. Now it doesn't hurt. Now, the first time it's hard. You know it's hard to do that. So you need to, as time goes by, you need to network. You need to work with other people. You need to promote the game. I I I am amazed at how many publishers once they publish the game, they don't do any promotion. Send copies to reviewers. Uh, that sounds self-serving. You say Vassal because you're a reviewer. Fine. Send it to all the reviewers except me. You know, but get that game out there. Get the get the reviewers looking at it because. That's a cost of a single game, which is not that much for a whole lot of eyeballs on it. You want people to know about the game, get people talking about the game, but not in a frenzied way to get it now, but that people think the game is actually that good, which also means when you go into your Kickstarter, you need to be prepared, you know, as, as the, you know, they, you just have to, you you can't say, well, we're still designing the game. Are you kidding me? You better not still be designing that game. You come in there with a, a close to final product, and that inspires a lot of confidence also. No, that's a great point. And let's, let me ask you this. If I wanted to send the game to you, what does that process look like? Do I need to email you first? Do I just need to send, you know, put the game in a box and ship it to your door? What does that process look like? For reviews of published games, people I always tell people to email me and likely – I'll have them ship it to me, although I always give them the caveats that, A, we have a very, very long queue of games, and, B, we don't promise to review a game if it's sent to us, Mm. you know, because we just get so many at this point in time. There are sometimes I'll say no to a game because we can tell just by looking at it that's not something that we will give a positive review to. Um, But if it's pre-Kickstarter, then we just say no because there's just too many. There's too many Kickstarters. If we reviewed Kickstarter games – before they went to Kickstarter, we wouldn't have time to review the published games. There are some reviewers, all they do is review Kickstarter games, and they have a long queue as well. So there, there are tons and tons of games. Well, if right you now. watch if you watch the reviewers who start getting into Kickstarter previews, you will know that with maybe one exception or so, a couple exceptions, uh, like Rado maybe and Dan King maybe, but the rest of them, that's most of what they do. Mm-hmm. It's more work. It requires you – They basically they want you to say only positive stuff about the game, right? <laughs> right. So it's just a preview, and you, some, you don't get to see the f- cool final product sometimes. And really the reason to do it is, ooh, you get to see something first. And I get that you get – you know people want to see stuff first, but I want to see something amazing. It doesn't have to be first. I just want to see amazing stuff. And I'm really excited about that because some of the games that I'm getting these days – Many, many other people have reviewed them and previewed them first. You know, I'm not getting any kind of scoop on it, but I'm getting that final product and I'm looking at it with fresh eyes. It's like, I just got Gloomhaven and 
I'm looking at it with fresh eyes. I knew nothing about the game. I, I, I saw some brief glimpses of it, and now I'm looking at it for the first time, and it looks really cool. And I like coming into it from that aspect. So let's talk about just with your experience now with Indiegogo and Kickstarter. And honestly, this would be a, a could be a whole another episode. Maybe even like to have you back on and talk through this. But just your general opinion as far as uh, which one to do, uh, Kickstarter versus Indiegogo. That's a really tough question for me to 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 give out advice on because uh, for me, Indiegogo is better than Kickstarter at least currently. There's a lot of different reasons for that, if nothing else, because Indiegogo has worked with me and Kickstarter does not. I, there's a lot of things I don't like about Kickstarter, mostly because they're so big. They're the biggest dog in town. They don't need to change. And if you look at Kickstarter in 2017, as opposed to Kickstarter in 2014, not a lot of changes there, hmm. right? And yet they're still taking 10% cut of profits right. because they exist. Now, so Indiegogo works better for me, but I have my own promotional machine behind it. I can tell people, back our show, back our show. For a board game, I'd be a little bit more scared about going to Indiegogo because there are people who are like just, you know, scouring Kickstarter and they won't see your project necessarily in Indiegogo. So that would be a tougher thing, and I'm not going to make any recommendations on that regard because I don't know. Right. No, that's a good point. With Kickstarter being the biggest dog in the yard, so to speak, you, you do get more organic reach you do get more people that are just used to kickstarter they understand the system and maybe they're more likely to back a game on there than another uh, system yeah and i mean even our even our show when we did our uh, the switch over to indiegogo there was definitely people who said oh i'm not backing the dice tower I, i'm not using anything other than kickstarter hmm. period i'm like okay well that is what it is i mean there's nothing i can do about that but there were definitely people who said that and that's unfortunate that people kind of get uh, so single-minded or single-focused on that. But you know what? If you've got a great game or, like in your case, a great show, the backers are going to be there uh, hopefully to help you, even if the, the, the people that are Kickstarter-only won't come over to the other side. Right. Well, we can hope. So let's talk about theme. So you're a big theme guy. You love thematic games. After playing you know, thousands of games, what have you seen as far as issues in themes? Now, one thing I know you've talked about a lot is trading in the Mediterranean, how the same theme over and over and over again shows up, it seems like, in a lot of different games. But uh, just talk through some issues you've seen with theming. With theming, I think people should always like sit there and say, well, what's a theme? First of all, the theme should kind of make sense. Now, there's a lot of games out there where it doesn't really matter about the theme, but the theme should be somewhat attractive. You know, There's some themes like, hey – you're going to be an accountant at Busco and Busco Incorporated. That's not that exciting. Mm. I'm surprised at the number of uh, quote-unquote trading in the Mediterranean games, although I do know that that's a theme that's more popular in Europe, although I haven't really gotten on that as much these days because that really isn't used as much nowadays in gaming. Nowadays, we're having a bigger problem with zombies and generic fantasy. Mm. Like I was just talking about Gloomhaven. One of the things that's attracting me to the game is that the fantasy is different. The different races in it, I don't even know what they are. The different classes, but I mean, how many other games do you see? Orcs, goblins, fighter, mage, elf, dwarf. Same old, same old. And that kind of needs to change. And we're, you know, but I don't know. I'm just looking for something that catches my eye. Like I was just playing Papo Paolo. We reviewed that uh, a couple weeks ago, and that's exciting to me because it's about delivering pizzas. Well, that's a cool theme. You know, it, it could have been something else, but the delivering pizzas was something new and unique, and I like that. And I think that's what people should should strive for, is something that catches people's attention, but isn't the same old, same old. And, of course, there's always going to be something hot, like Vikings was really hot last year, right? Yeah. And Mars. Vikings and Mars. Hmm, that sounds like a cool game. Maybe Vikings <laughs> on Mars. There you go, crossover. 
Okay, if someone takes that, Dice Tower, you talk to me. I copyrighted it. But but yeah, I mean, I'm always looking for something intriguing. And when I get a game, even if the game is bad, but the theming is cool and unique, like there's a game I, I have called Fallen Angel. It's not a very good game. But the idea is there's this city that is, uh, or like the space station city type thing that is being brought by the forces of darkness and is falling onto Earth, and you need to stop it from falling and crashing onto the planet. That's pretty cool. Yeah. That's a unique theme. So that's kind of what I'm looking for. And what what can a designer do to avoid just having a pasted-on theme? I know, I know some games are just abstract, and it is what it is, but what are some things a designer can do to kind of make a game more thematic or more immersive? Well, I mean, you just think about the theme as you design the, the, the game, I guess, but not be slavishly tied to it because, you know, not everything is always fun, even if it's realistic. Like, uh, I always use the example of Blackbeard. It's a pirate game by Richard Berg. It's about pirates, and it's very realistic, and you have to roll to make sure that you don't, your guys don't catch scurvy. That is not fun. <laughs> sure, it's realistic, but um, no one cares. Right. right. I, I think when you get too caught up in the details, you can you can bog the game down with a lot of realism, but a lot of not so much fun. So what are, what are some things that maybe you want to see more of? Like just your personal opinion, what are some games that you, you wish there were more games in this theme? Or maybe there's never been a game about this you know specific subject. What are some of those games? This is like my most asked question, I right. think, because I talk about themes so much. I... I don't necessarily have like a whole lot of things in my mind. I'm just looking for something interesting like... Uh, like hard science is kind of intriguing. There's a lot of, you know, fantasy sci-fi sci out there, but hard sci-fi is interesting. Science in general, like chemistry and physics is interesting. To me, modern day retail sounds kind of intriguing as opposed to, you know, running a spice merchant in the 1700s. <laughs> Why can't I run Walmart? You know, that's kind of an intriguing thing. So I, I don't know. There's just so many unique themes there's not a lot of kaiju games out there there's not a lot of uh i don't know city there's not as many city building games as you might think there's a lot of werewolf though we don't need any more of that but there's just i don't know i'm just looking for something interesting and different what are what are maybe some more mechanics you'd like to see or under underutilized mechanics i don't know i i mean i'm pretty happy with everything i used to say i wish it was more drafting uh, but there's more games have that. I wish there was more games with I split, you choose, where I split the thing and someone else chooses it. I think that's always a good mechanism. But, I mean, as time goes by, this is one of those things where when I play something, I'm like, this is amazing. This is a great idea. And, you know, people smarter than me come up with this stuff. Let's talk about kind of the publishing side. You know, after reviewing so many games and seeing all the different quality of components and cards and boxes and all that, what are some of the biggest issues you see uh, with, from publishers? It's just, just not doing a great job in actually printing the game. Well, you got to make things cost effective, right? So you got to be, you got to, you got to keep that in mind. But at the same time, so many times they, they chintz out on just, you know, the make things low quality or trying to combine things or, um, bad iconography is a, is a really big problem, right? Where, what do these icons even mean? Publishers are constantly messing up color wise. Like, Oh, I didn't even think about colorblind people. Well, why not? Mm. You know, think about these things, make the game accessible to as many people as you possibly can. You know, is the stuff too small? Can people read it? Oh, there's just so many different things. In fact, this month, uh, we're putting out a top 10 things publishers should not do. 
Um, and I will be, I, I, I haven't yet formulated my list, but I will be making a list of these exact things. No, that's, that's a great point. Any, any other things to add to that? Just now you talked about colorblind and making things accessible. Any other things that a designer just has to be aware of? Well, be aware of your audience. I mean, I, I'm, I'm not a political person at all. I don't, I don't go off on political rants or I keep them out of the dice tower totally, but this is not a political thing. People keep trying to politicize it. It's not. But inclusivity is a human thing. And I am amazed at the number of publishers who seem to think only men play games. And that's going to be a self-fulfilling prophecy if you continue to make your games geared that way. Simple things like there are playable characters. Five are men. One's a woman. (laughs) Why did you do that? You know, just, you know, or the artwork in the game is off-putting or things like that. And I've talked about this many times in the past, but I really strongly believe it. And we're seeing change in the industry this way. I'm super excited about that, to see change in the industry where everybody's included. And it's not just a men-women thing. There's other groups of people and, and things. We need to be including everyone in gaming. Gaming is for everyone except jerks. That's what I always say. <laughs> I don't care if we exclude jerks, but right. everyone else is welcome. No, that's a good point. I mean, the point of games is to bring people together, to bring people to the table. And they're going to be from all sorts of different walks of life and backgrounds and, and all sorts of just differences among them. You know, and I've got two little girls and there's a lot of games that I've seen that I go, you know what? I don't think my, my children, my, my little girls would relate to any of the characters in this game just from how they are you know, depicted through the art or just maybe there's not any female characters to play as. And it's, it's extremely unfortunate because we're leaving out a lot of people who would be incredible to have in the gaming community. Now, I'm not saying that every game has to follow a certain thing and every game needs to have an exact number of male and female characters right. and a certain number of, you know, Asian characters, et cetera, et cetera. However, there are so many games out there where changes like that are so easy to do and so easy to bring in. And yet it's almost like they are deliberately not doing it. Right. And I love games like Legends of Andor, where, you know, one player, one side of the player card, there's the male version and you flip it over and there's the female version. And that is so simple. That is one extra drawing, honestly, that to do. It's not that expensive. And there's no reason why more games don't do shouldn't or can't do that. Yeah, really. I mean, that's a that, that's an easy fix there. And I really like that sort of thing. And I really like how some companies go out of their way to make it really exciting and different and and I'm and I'm like I said I think we're seeing a positive swing in the industry this way. Staying on components, what are maybe your thoughts on the the biggest return on investment? So what are some components that if if publishers put more money into this, the the game itself is going to be uh, improved maybe farther than or more than the money that was put in like a better better quality tokens, better quality cards, better quality box. What are what's kind of the few things that you think this is if you're going to spend money on it, spend money on these things. Art Art. And graphic design. Combination of the two. Because they are very different things. Mm, yes, good all point. right. Just because you're a good artist doesn't mean you're a good graphic designer. But I'm telling you, if a game has amazing art, I notice. And if a game has bad art, I notice above anything else. Sure, you know, card quality is useful. Thick counters is nice. Plastic miniatures is cool. Wooden pieces is great. But that artwork, that box cover, every all those things, that's what makes people buy your game at the store. Right. And you may have a friend who you love their drawings that they did when you were both in high school together. <laughs> but that does not mean that artwork's going to appeal to many people. And I can't tell you how many boxes I see where I get them in the mail. And my first reaction to the game is negative already. Already I'm negatively predisposed, uh, blah, 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 pre, 
Dispos- predisposed. Predisposed to dislike the game. Yep. Also, I need to learn grammar. No worries. Well, let's talk about that. What are what are some ways uh, a game can have a great box? Like, what what does a good box look like on the shelf? You see it in the store, or you buy that? Well, that's the art and the graphic design. I mean, really, that's what it is. It's something that stands out. Something that also tells you what the game is. I'm amazed, like how many games on the back of the box do not show a picture of the game. Mm. I understand that you want to make the cover some cool pirate, you know, stabbing another pirate or whatever. That's fine. But the back should show me what's inside that box. And it better look good. And there's a lot of boxes where it doesn't show me what's on the back. It just says, you know, it's the year 1837, blah, 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 blah. Great. But if you don't show me what's in that box, I'm not buying it right now because I want to know what I'm getting. Um, also, if I pick the box up and it feels like air, I am I am also slightly nervous. Right. Yeah, we're definitely just psychologically, uh, based on the weight of a box, we look at the, we feel the weight and then we look at the price tag and we go, does this ma- match up? Does this line up with how much this costs? Uh, also, another thing about boxes that a lot of people do for some reason is they have these sad people on the front. They have these people, these characters on the front of the box, and they're just melancholy. And it, why, why do you think so many people do that? <laughs> I, I really don't know. <laughs> I... It's like the holdover from the 1800s, you mm-hmm. know, when they had that stand for a really long time with a picture. So <laughs> right. they, they didn't smile because it's hard to hold a smile that long. Right. I, I don't know. I, I'm, I'm that I feel like is a personal preference on my part, but I feel like the, the cover should be not static. It should be exciting. It should be interesting. It should give you a feel of the theme of the game. Uh, there are so many cool covers I have, and there's a couple games I have where I don't really show the cover off because the game is great, but you know, the cover itself is kind of mundane and boring. And and I don't think you know everybody on the cover of a box needs to have this like crazy cheesy grin, or it doesn't need to be like the old school games where you had the kids, the picture of the kids playing on the back, and they had like <laughs> these posed, just obviously overly done, you know, expressions and all that. You don't have to go that far, but at least have some people in the front that look like they're excited or happy to be there. Right. Well, what are some just general advice you would give to designers, to people, especially young designers that are maybe just starting out or just done, just starting to work through the process of designing a game? Just some general things you'd tell them. Just starting out. Well, I mean, we already mentioned a lot of things. Play as many games as you possibly can. Yeah. Network. Get involved in the community. You know, when you finally have that great game, knowing who to show that game to is a big deal. And then you know what? Be prepared for rejection. Your first game might not be that good. It likely won't be. Right. You know, so get ready to change it or sometimes chuck it and start out another game. Uh, this is a, an interesting hobby. There's a, there are thousands of games coming out every year. You know, we mentioned I played 5,000 games at the beginning, and I don't play every game that has come out, period. There's probably 100,000 different board games in existence. I can't play them all. So your game needs to stand out in its category. So that's what I would recommend. That's that's great advice. Anything you learned through the development and the creation of Nothing Personal that you could kind of share with somebody else as far as, hey, don't do this, I learned this? Well, there's many different things. I mean, one simple change, I would have put a lot more female gangsters in it. I, at the time, I was like, well, this needs to be, you know, historical. Well, the game isn't historical anyway. It's uh, <laughs> idiotic mobsters. I would have simplified it more. If I was redoing the game, I'd, I'd make it maybe 60% of the complexity that it is now. I made it too long. Um, there's just various things that I would have streamlined it more. You know, that's, that's the thing I would change about it. If I was doing it now, streamline it, streamline, streamline. 
But um, other than that, I was pretty happy with how it turned out. I worked with a co-designer, which was a it, – it comes with its benefits and disadvantages. There's you know, the advantage of having two minds both thinking of great things. There's disadvantages sometimes two minds think very different things. Right. And so you know, there's lots of lessons in that. Yeah, no doubt. We um, One of the first episodes of this podcast was actually talking about how to co-design a game and all the, the pitfalls and, and challenges, but also all the positives as well because there's a lot – that goes into it. Uh, are you looking to design another game? Or are you hoping to get another one out anytime? Nah, I mean, I'm not saying it won't ever happen, but I'm definitely not looking into that. I'm have so much more fun playing other people's games. I don't need to, I don't need to play. I, I don't need to design my own. I did it. I'm cool. It was fun, but it was a ton of work and I had to play the same game a gazillion times and I'd rather play other people's games. <laughs> you know, that's something a lot of people don't understand when you design a game, you're going to really play it. I mean, a ridiculous amount of times just through playtesting, but also at like conventions and showing people the game and all that. So if you make a game that you don't enjoy, man, that's going to be tough as you have to play it over and over and over again. Right. Well, Tom, I really appreciate your time, man. Uh, we're actually going to go into a bonus round. We're going to get your thoughts on where you hope games and, and the game design industry uh, is headed. You know, maybe not where you think it's going to go, but where you hope it's going to go. And so we're going to do that in the bonus round. Uh, for everybody listening, if you want to check that out, go over to boardgamedesignlab.com. You can get all the bonus uh, show parts of the show, all the bonus materials over there. And I uh, really appreciate y'all listening. Tom, thank you for being on the show. And uh, man, good luck with everything you got going on right now. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for listening. Find all sorts of game design resources, bonus material, and chances to win free games at BoardGameDesignLab.com. And until next time, keep designing, keep playtesting, and keep creating great games. Did I mention keep playtesting?